Media Law Podcast newscast. In our last episode, we spoke about the hypocrisy of the free speech champion to be appointed by the Department for Education, who is to protect universities from cancel culture and the woke. And the irony is not lost on us that today we are going to be discussing the proposed Protection of the Police and Public Bill that will introduce major crackdowns on freedom of expression and the right to protest. We are joined today by David Mead, a professor of human rights law at the University of East Anglia and author of The New Law to Peaceful Protest, and of course, Tom and Paul. And we'll be discussing the implications of the proposed bill. Hi, all. Hi there. Hi, Dela. Perhaps it's best I start by providing just a bit of background to this bill. So the, the proposition seeks to amend the Public Order Act 1986 to expand the powers available to the police to respond to protests in three ways. The first is to broaden the powers of senior officers to impose conditions like where the protest is to be held, its maximum duration and the maximum number of participants that can be involved. The second is a change in the wording that lowers the threshold for when conditions on protest can be imposed so that they are no longer for, I quote, serious disruption to the life and the community, but instead for, and I quote, significant disruption. And the third is increases in powers to uh, stop and search individuals joining the protest. These three changes expand the scope and illegality in relation to protest-related conduct and thus narrow the definition or more rigorously police the bounds of what constitutes acceptable protest. The right to protest is a fundamental component of free speech. While respect for rights enshrined in the European Convention of Human Rights and the Human Rights Act should, in theory, be nonpartisan, protest has long been fiercely a fiercely political issue, particularly as a form of expression often wielded against those currently holding political power. The Home Secretary has herself polarised the issues of protest by denouncing environmental campaigns like Extinction Rebellion as eco-crusaders turned criminals and accusing Black Lives Matters campaigners of hooliganism and thuggery. David, perhaps we should start with you. Um, can you just give us a little bit more detail on why the right to protest is a fundamental right that's protected by the Human Rights Act? Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, I mean, obviously, it's closely linked to freedom of speech, um, Article 10 uh, in the ECHR, and there's quite a lot of overlap between the two. So I suppose the simplest way would be to think of it as a, as a sort of a collective way of giving effect to your free speech through numbers of people, perhaps on the street or something like that. So I think there's more to it than just simply seeing it as as a complement to and, a, and, a, and an adjunct to free speech. So it allows people and you touched upon this in your introduction, it allows quite often marginalised groups, people that don't have power to make their voices known through collective action on the streets to people who've who've got it. So I think it's in some ways it's you know it's more important as a right for people, perhaps as all human rights are, you know, for people that don't have power, because broadly if you've got power, you get political mechanisms to do your I always say you know to do your dirty work for you. And it's if you haven't got that power that you need the rights to assemble, the rights to protest. And I suppose another thing to think about as well is, and sometimes you have the argument, you know, what, why do you need a right of protest? You've, we've got elections, but, you know, we only vote every five years. What happens if something turns up in the middle of those five years, so on, on day two of a government? So you need to have some means of persuading others, of encouraging others to do something, to take action. 
kind of change people's minds as a safety valve. So some of the arguments, I suppose, for protest are very similar to free speech, but I think it's the, the collective nature, you know, showing solidarity with people that actually can galvanise support. You know, having just numbers of people on the on the streets might change people's minds about things. So I think that's its integral element. So it it relates to free speech, but and supports it, but is a it's conceptually a different thing. It's, it's it's numbers of people making their voices known physically, making their voices known to people in power or to other people to try and persuade them. I mean, we only need to think of you know things like you know suffragettes, um, uh, Gandhi, Martin Luther King. You know, the, the, you know the, the list of people who have successfully used different forms of protest, whether it's I suppose what we would think of as you know, traditional protests of marches, assemblies, demos, rallies, or more other forms of, of action, non-violent, direct action, and to change the laws, um, you know, is, is, is almost too many to list. That it's you know, it's almost it's almost so, so obvious why we why we need it. I think, and so the bill does represent quite a threat to people being able to take collective action with like-minded souls and and try and change the world or change their positions or improve things again. So you said in in, that closing point that this these changes do constitute a threat and but I you also mentioned that we go we're drawing our right to protest from free speech which has legitimate reasons to be contained and so the idea that this new bill is posing a threat to the right to protest is kind of wrapped up in the fact that actually you right to protest is not an f- absolute right you're not allowed to do whatever you want and so there needs to be limits on it what is it about this bill and the limits that are proposed that are, are causing so much trouble in, in around you know le- legal scholars and communities well i think i think that probably falls into i mean i take the point entirely yes of course i mean i, I you know, nobody would advocate that you should always be able to, in the same way as free speech as you say you know that we don't have it as an absolute right and it needs to be um balanced against other things but i think there are i think there are three ways in which it's problematic so i think the first is um the the, the both the expanse of reasons that po- that police can use to impose conditions on assemblies and marches uh, sort of coupled with the vagueness of some of the terms um, I think would sort of be reason reason one reason two I think and I think this probably goes you you might see this a bit less with free speech than you do with protests about this is where sometimes they they depart so we talk in free speech you know obviously about the chilling effect but when you couple that with protest law, which is generally state-sanctioned coercion through the police, which you, you don't as often get with free speech, the real problem, and this is a point I've been advocating or trying to argue for many, many years, and I'm arguing you know, about the current bill, is less the, the wording of the legislation and more the latitude that it affords police officers in advance to do things. So I suppose maybe that's a that's an instantaneous distinction perhaps between free speech and protest is we are much more obviously dealing with preemptive preventive powers than we normally would be with free speech, generally speaking. You're you're you're, you're arrested after the event. And that in turn 
probably dissuades people from taking part. You know, where the law isn't clear, sensible people probably err on the side of caution um, and wouldn't, wouldn't go on a march, wouldn't go on a demonstration. And there's a lot of literature about the police using um, what's, what's, what's wonderfully described, I heard Robert Reiner describe it one of the years, the Ways and Means Act. You know, they use their powers to get people to do things that are actually outside of their lawful power. In other words, if you were to challenge them and take them to court, they wouldn't be able to do it. But through the, the strength of the mm-hmm. uniform, from the strength of the position that they hold, perceived position, actual position they hold, we are persuaded to do things that actually they couldn't make us do. So I think that's the sort of the other, the other second way. And then the third, I remember the third. The third, I think, is that, yes, rights need to be balanced, but they need to be balanced both sensibly and against the right sorts of things. And I think sometimes we fall into the trap, and you can see this quite a lot in sort of recent political discourse around the bill and in the lead up to the bill over the last year, that there is a sort of an equation of the rights of people to go about their shopping on a Saturday on a par with my rights to make my political point. And it's just assumed that those are of equal value. And I think that's at best not arguably the case, and, and I would and what I would say is not the case. There is there is much less, and again, we talk about this in free speech, and this is you know, reasonably well-known stuff for free speech people, of you know, the instrumental value, the social value of free speech, so that my free speech is of value to you, even if you aren't exercising or listing it. You I might find out something you didn't know or be persuaded of something. So we all have an interest in other people's free speech. And we all have an interest in somebody else's right to protest. I, I, it's very hard to see how we all have an interest in somebody else being able to go shopping. So I think when we're looking at balancing, we, we fall in error. And I've made this point um, about the most recent bill. Again, as a, a long running complaint I've had about the sort of the, the political discourse in the area around protest is we end up either misbalancing things or balancing the wrong things. And I think if we throw also into the mix the right of business and things like that, which has a much less, a much less surer footing in 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 doctrinal convention human rights terms, you know, there isn't the right to carry on your business. There is the right to enjoy your your possessions without in, unnecessary interference, but that is nowhere near as clear cut as a right to assemble. So. I think those three together, you know, the, 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 the lack of clarity in the terms, the preventive landscape that it opens up for police officers to chill people, and the potential for misbalancing between r- properly called rights and social interest are, are really things for concern. Yeah, it's conflating privileges and rights, isn't it? You have a privilege. It's a privilege to be able to go shopping and have street lighting and take the tube, but it's not a fundamental right. Um, is there anything that, you know, Tom or Paul, you want to comment on anything that David's just said? David, do you think that the uh, present climate is responsible for the Tories' policy here? In that you talk about, uh, you know, the right to go shopping and blah, blah, blah. But of course, over the past 12 months, we've seen the government for, for sensible reasons, but we've seen the government uh, strongly curtail the ability uh, to actually go down to the shops. 
with minimal resistance, certainly in terms of public protest, public demonstration. Um, do, do you sort of feel that that that, that, uh, that sort of attrition or, or that, uh, that, that sort of uh, lack of opposition has enabled the Tories to even be able to propose this type of uh, bill? That's a very good point, Paul. I think, I think, I think yes. I mean, it, it's certainly the case. I think there's a whole variety of factors that play into the current climate. So there is obviously the the lack of liberty that we've generally experienced in the last year. You know, lockdown almost in in our houses and or lack of being able to protest, take part in religious ceremonies and, and all those sorts of things. As you say, for very, very good reason. But that has, I think, that that is, and there hasn't been as much. I've been quite surprised by... There's, a, you know, there's, there's pockets of resistance to that um, yeah. anti-lockdown, but but, um, they, but they they seem to be there, harking to a different sort of problem than perhaps the more general problem that that, that you're alluding to and that I'm I'm thinking about. I mean, they, you know, they're 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 tied up with that with with a host of other things as well. I think um, you know, it is a very libertarian rather than perhaps liberal approach to to taking the government on. So I think yes, that, that's certainly one. There's clearly been a climate that the government or or, or or a wave of opinion that the government has been able to to ride and perhaps you know uh, assist in constructing with both XR and Black Lives Matter. And if you read some of the you know the background material, I have to say there's been very little one of the real complaints I've got is has come almost out of the blue. There's almost nothing that explains why this bill is floated now and what it's going to do. You know, perhaps we might, we might come into that a bit later. But 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 certainly the climate has been those two major groups of protests over the last 18 months at different times. So you know, closing down the Murdoch newspapers, for example, and the, the statues in Bristol and other sorts of events and those sorts of things. I think has 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 has, has allowed a climate to develop and, and, and foster where we are less worried and certainly if you read and they may you know they're not they're obviously not um, then they're, they're not independent and objectives but you if you read the debates in Hansard from conservative back, I mean that's all that that's going on about you know this is a law and order on behalf of you know right thinking citizens to crack down on on the in fact I've just I've got a, a, a blog post probably coming out today on exactly this of the construction of good activists and bad activists and good citizens and bad citizens. I mean, perhaps as in the point I make in the blog, you know, is actually as a distraction. So I think I call the bill a lightning rod that has actually channeled, um, um, you know, public sentiment about climate change and about the treatment of marginalised groups in society, which we should be very, very cross about, and has channeled that fantastically into let's do something about the people who are trying to do something about it. And you think that's just. You know, a bonkers land that we're living in. So they've, it, it's, it's been very facilitative in that sort of in that sort of way. I think the bill. I think it's, you know, I think it's indicative, symbolic, totemic of a host of other things. You know, it's speaking to different things than actually the word. I mean, the words are bad enough, I think, but I think it is tapping into a, a discourse and a mentality that is 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 is, is quite worrying. You know, constructions of 
of distinction and divide and those sorts of things, which we will all love, we will all suffer from if that is, you know, if that does eventuate. So I think I think yeah, there's a whole host of things. I mean, you know, I, I think the but to take that point, uh, your point, and but, but mine about the climate. What's really strange about the bill is that the problems that seem to be the uh, you know the origins that have given it its lifeblood aren't actually going to be solved by the bill. I mean, you know, to, to give an example, a couple of years ago, um, Jenny Jones and a group of others challenged the Extinction Revolution um, uh, clampdowns on assembly by the, by the Met. Took the court to judicial review, won the judicial review, and the basis of the success of the judicial review was that the Met couldn't effectively centrally impose conditions. They had to be at different scenes across the, the capital to do that in order for... Section yeah. 12 and Section 14, you know, the proper interpretation of the legislation, it required someone to be at sea, not sitting in a central control booth. You know, that was, they got, the, the men uh, were very upset about that, understandably. Politicians were very upset about that, understandably. There is nothing in this bill that, that, that deals with that. You know, there is, no, it would be, I'm not saying it should have been, but if that is the problem, the problem yeah. simply is to change the legislation yeah. and allow centralised conditions to be imposed. Yet it doesn't. So there is there is obviously something going on with this bill that is bigger and and above the bill that is that is that it's trying to do. So I was also struck again for this blog uh, this blog on the LSE politics thing that I think should be going up quite soon. Um, I went back and looked at some of the debates on Monday and Tuesday night this week, the you know, second reading debates. And I was struck by how many conservative backbench MPs either thought the bill was doing something that it wasn't or wasn't doing something that it was. So there's two or three that I found are, are very pleased that finally we're going to do, be able to do something about serious disruption to the life of the community. That's been in the Public Order Act since 1980s. You know, this bill does not do that. It does other things. It cuts down on noise that might cause serious unease. But what it doesn't do is allow yeah. the police to do something about serious disruption because they've had that power for 35 years. Um, so yeah. the sorts of problems that have been floating around, I mean, my argument is that they're, they're, it's just the bill is misdirected. It's not being directed at the things that have caused concern or not obviously and easily directed at them, but is going to be used at, at wider and different things that I think ultimately will will rather regret if the bill goes through. Sorry, I just have one question based on something you just said, David. Um, and that was the, the, the blanket condition that prohibited the Extinction Rebellion protests in 2019 that went to judicial review. You say that this bill doesn't actually address that particular issue. But I thought that that is exactly what's included in the first change that I mentioned in the introduction, the idea that they've given more powers to senior officers to impose conditions on static assembly, including... Where the, where the protest is held, the maximum duration and and the maximum number of participants. Could you maybe correct me on that then, just in case listeners have also had that that impression? That yeah, yeah, no, sure. So the so that what the bill at the at the moment the the police have there are basically three trigger conditions to impose conditions on a procession or an assembly. So that's serious damage to property, serious uh, serious disorder, serious public serious public disorder serious disruption to the life of the community. And what this bill is proposing is, is really to do two things. And, and so in, at the moment, for assemblies and marches, the police have slightly different condition powers. So 
um, and I can never remember which way round it is. I really ought to. I've been looking at this for 25 years. But in, for, for one of them, they can only impose conditions as to number, duration, and location. So one of the plans here is to ensure that the police, that that, that limitation is not, is removed. So the powers to impose conditions will simply be, is it necessary to prevent serious disruption? Whether that's an assembly or in a procession, it now doesn't matter. So that's sort of change one. But change two is they've intro they're introducing a fourth trigger of, I suppose, into later we'd call it serious noise. So is the noise going to have either serious disruption um, the activities of an organisation, i.e. to a business, or significant impact on people? So for both assemblies and processions, there's going to be a fourth trigger of noise, noisiness. It has to reach a certain level. Problem one, we don't know what that level is going to be, but it will allow the police to impose conditions on assemblies and marches. But what it doesn't do, I mean, this to sort of answer that question, is it doesn't, there is nothing in the bill that, that allows the police to impose those conditions except at the scene. So they still have to be at the scene. There is nothing in the bill that allows someone to stand at one place and say, I'm going to impose conditions on the 14th that I know are taking place across London, even though I'm not at them. So that's that's what I mean. So it's, it's expanding the armory of the police in terms of the triggers, you know, excessive noise, which, of, which you know, is the very problem. I've termed it elsewhere in another blogger, but you know, that's an, ex, an existential threat to protest, because if there is one thing that protests are, they are necessarily noisy. Yes, you have silent vigils. Yes, you can communicate through placards. But ultimately, you and 150, 250, 100,000 other mates want to be making a noise to attract attention to yourselves. And that's exactly what the bill is going to cut down on. And that's exactly the power that the police will have. And it will be up to them to decide what is too noisy. And if you are too noisy, your remedy is many months later, probably, challenge your arrest for being in a noisy procession in court. So, again, we can see a difference with free speech. You, 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 it, it's almost always ex post facto sorting out when it's just too late. You know, it, 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 it's like with news. You know, if you, if you have an injunction on a newspaper by tomorrow, it's pointless. You know, on, the, on the day of an election, you want to get that news out. It's no, no point having a, a, a news story about a corrupt prime minister the day after he or she has got a five-year term. And it's similar with protests. You need to take part on them on the day rather than the court saying they, they shouldn't have done that. Here's 150 pounds. You know, you've you've not made your point known about horrible dictator coming to the embassy that, that everyone is cross about. Great. Thank you for that clarification. Tom, I interrupted you. The question why the, the government thinks that they can get away with this at this point, um, I, I think is explicable. Um, by reference to some psychological evidence. Um, the psychologist Michelle Gelfand, um, is, uh, associated with the University of Maryland, um, has looked into the effect that, or what we might call troubled times, has on the mindset of a populace. And it's empirically verifiable that in times of social strife and unease and uncertainty, 
populations cleave to tighter iterations of social norms. They seek out tighter restrictions on the range of available conduct because that gives a degree of stability and certainty. Now, this is a psychological fact, right? It's been proven. Um, with a range of experiments, and Gelfand writes about it in, 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 in her work. Um, the, we are currently living through extraordinarily troubled times, no doubt about that. The pandemic has induced a lot of uncertainty and unease uh, in the population of this country and of many countries around the world. When that is happening, it is the ideal opportunity for a conservative government right, in the small C sense, a government that wishes to restrict protest, um, to do so because it, it, it constitutes a tightening of social norms. Um, so that's, I think, why the situation lends itself to the government getting away with this. This is not a time at which we are seeing, exactly as David pointed out earlier, we're not seeing mass protests against the restrictions that the government has put on people's freedom of movement and so forth during the pandemic. Why not? Because we're all clinging, uh, or the majority, the vast majority are clinging to as tight a social network as we can, as tight a network of social norms as we can. Um, so I think that that gives some explanation as to why the government thinks it can get away with this at this time. And I think it may well be right that it can get away with it at this time. Um, that then leads the question as to why is the government doing this? You know, substantively, why does the government want to restrict the, restrict the right to protest in these ways? And I'm reminded of not dissimilar restrictions brought in in the mid-2000s by the new Labour administration to restrict protests around the uh, Iraq war. And specifically, it strikes me that there is a parallel between the legislation currently proposed and the Serious Organised Crime and Police Act um, that was brought in under new Labour. The Serious Organised Crime and Police Act is, without any serious doubt, a piece of legislation that was brought in to get Brian Hoare. Brian Hoare was the peace campaigner who camped out in Parliament Square for years, largely silently, protesting against the Iraq war. And the presence there, the visual presence, was a thorn in the side of Home Secretary after Home Secretary after Home Secretary in that administration because he was protesting against the war. So what did the uh, government do? It introduced legislation to Parliament with a whopping great majority, largely designed just to try to move Brian Hoare um, and passed that act so that it could do so. Now, ultimately, Hoare kept winning legal challenges against attempts to remove him under the act as it was poorly drafted legislation. And the whole issue is dealt with extraordinarily well in the stand-up routine by the, the, the comic Mark Thomas called Serious Organised Criminal. And if you ever get the chance to watch that, you should watch it. It's hilarious and informative. Um, but this legislation, this new bill brought in by this government today, is designed to get Extinction Rebellion in exactly the same way. I think to a lesser extent it's designed also to get Black Lives Matter, um, but Black Lives Matter is not an organized group in quite the way that, I know XR is not 
hierarchically organized either, but it has a degree more organization internationally um, than, than, than BLM, which isn't really a group at all. Um, Extinction Rebellion has caused disruption to the government. It has caused disruption, particularly in London, and it has caused disruption to the government's biggest backers, the uh, tabloid press, particularly the right-wing tabloid press, um, when printing presses have been, as we covered on the podcast a few months ago, um, uh, subject to disruption. So this legislation is not being brought in to address a widespread problem affecting society, it is being brought in, targeted to prevent the most disruptive activities, which also happen to be the most effective activities, of a narrow group of protesters protesting a narrow range of issues by a government that is committed to stopping them. Um, we said on the podcast, I said on the podcast just last week, when we were talking about the plans to introduce a free speech czar in universities, that this government has no interest whatsoever in protecting your free speech or my free speech. And this piece of proposed legislation does absolutely nothing to contradict what I said. In fact, all it does is support it. This is a government that is trying to prevent uh, freedom of speech in the form of effective protests. And, and David, David raised the point that a lot of protests... Uh, that have been effective throughout history have been the disruptive ones, the noisy ones, the ones that get under the skin of politicians. I think we could go further. How many protests that are not disruptive have ever succeeded in their aims? They don't. For protests to succeed, it must be disruptive. That is the nature of protest. I, th- I mean, I, w- I would, I would, I would depart. Only to say this, that I, I think while XR obviously I think is the target or one of two targets, and it's very clear, you know, Priti Patel labelling them eco-terrorists, which she might have been eco-terrorists, but was very quick on the draw to label them. I think the trouble, the problem with the bill is that it is, it, 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 its potential is just to, to catch almost anybody, you know, within it. So even if it were targeted on one group, we could argue yes or no, that's good or not good, um, and have a and have a sensible discussion about that. The fact that it is not actually targeted on anyone, but will will we'll capture anybody who uh, I mean to give to give an example of the what was sort of the worry I, I've got a different worry to Tom, or it might, might be Tom's worry, but I don't, wasn't really what he was saying in his point just then. You know, is that is this expanse of police power? So one of the things that the legislation does. At the moment, it is unlawful to, and, and again, broadly, to sleep outside Parliament or to use amplified equipment outside Parliament. There's a lot of different sections that effectively amount to, this is in the um, PSR, the public, PSRA, Public and so, Police and Social Responsibility Act of 2011, I think. Uh, and it's the replacement for what Tom was talking about, the ban on protest outside Westminster. So that ban was in place for about five or six years. And in its place came a much more targeted set of prohibitions on people setting up camp or using amplified equipment. And what the act does, or what the bill does, is it expands those prohibited activities from, on the one hand, sleeping, and on the other, amplified noise, to include obstruction of people going in and out of the Palace of Westminster. 
And the difficulty, the problem that this brings is that the other two necessarily have equipment with them. So in order to have sleeping equipment to stay overnight, you've got to have a piece of equipment. Now, that might not be a tent. It might not be a sleeping bag. There have been issues around the police arresting people for having lots of pizza boxes that they were going to sleep on. So there are definitional issues, but you've got to have something in your possession. Same with having amplified noise. You, you have got to have a loudspeaker and, or something. You can't just have your voice with you. So the problem of extend, seemingly extending it to the sorts of activities where people go, yeah, no, that's right. I can't really see the difference between those two. We shouldn't let people do that sort of thing. So we need to clamp down on it. Is that you don't have to have anything with you to obstruct someone going in, out, in and out of parliament. And as a result of that, the police have even greater latitude to take preventive action, because at least for the other two, you've got to have something on your person. Whereas now you simply have to be walking near Westminster and the police could construct an argument that you are going to obstruct someone coming out of the Houses of Parliament simply by getting in the way of a car. So my worry with the bill is, is not simply this targeting of groups wrongly, where I say you know, we should actually be engaging with those issues, not trying to outlaw them and marginalise them, but the potential this has for policing power, which is almost always a one-way street. You know, there's never really a, a reduction on policing power and an expansion of people's rights. Bar the Human Rights Act in 1998, there has not been a, a pro-protest piece of legislation um, in in my lifetime, certainly not in 1986 and onwards. So it, it, it lays the way for very unregulated policing power from the usual sorts of reasonable suspicion, reasonable belief, preventive powers, that it's then up to you to do something about if something happens to you. It's for you to take the police to court. It's for you to seek judicial review. So there is nothing in the bill, and we always talk about this, don't we, with human rights, about balancing. We were talking about balancing earlier on. There's nothing on the face of this bill that provides any safeguards, any means of people, for example, challenging some of this policing behaviour at the time or very close to the time or in advance. Now, you can take judicial review if the police have imposed conditions on you enough in advance for you to get into the high court. But if they decide on the day, which they can, to impose conditions on a group of people walking down Oxford Street and say, oh, well, there's only going to be four of you. You can have you've got four of you for 10 minutes. That's it. You can't get to the high court to challenge that. You're left after the event to do one of two things. One, to be arrested and set up your arrest. So set up as a defense to your arrest, the unlawfulness of the conditions, effectively a collateral challenge that this was a breach of your rights under the convention. Therefore, I haven't really committed the, the offence because the convention provides me with my reasonable excuse defence. Or after the event, sort of challenging by way of a declaration or, or for damages or, or going after the event to get a declaration, a judicial review declaration that the police had acted unlawfully and they shouldn't act like that in future. Either, neither of which is of any real use to you. So that's my worry with this. It's, it's, it's couched in very, in terms which will give the police an awful lot of discretion and leeway. I agree entirely with, with David. Um, and just on the point about the targeted nature of the, the legislation, I completely agree that the risk is that 
a much broader range of people than are intended to be, or at least that, that are the, the the kind of political targets of this are going to be caught up in it. And that was exactly the problem with the Serious Organized Crime and Police Act back in the mid-2000s, because although it was brought in to get Brian Hoare, it didn't actually succeed in getting Brian Hoare, but it did succeed in catching out an awful lot of other protests um, that people wanted to make against the Iraq war and, and, and similarly controversial political issues at the time. So that, that is always the problem. When politicians design legislation in order, you know, quite narrowly get a particular political opponent, and that's what we're talking about here, they end up drafting something that gets used against a much broader range of targets, and it just very quickly gets out of control, which is why we shouldn't have politicians trying to take on particular groups with generalized rules. Um, but that is you know, uh, that is what governments can do when they have an 80-seat majority in parliament. I mean, it's a similar thing, Tom. I was, I was just going to say, like with aggravated trespass in 1994, very clearly brought in to deal with fox hunt saboteurs, Good idea, bad idea. We can dispute that, but the but the width of it, you know, obstructing somebody, trespassing and obstructing someone else's lawful activity, leaves a whole. You know, student occupation started to be brought in. A whole host of things were criminalised through a law ostensibly brought in to deal with problem A. Because the trouble with it, I mean, I suppose to take Tom's point, if, if you're trying to deal with problem A, and this is not, you know, this is a general you know, legal drafting. You draft it tightly to deal with problem A, the people who are doing problem A soon start to do problem B, and you're just playing catch up. So instead, you draft to do problems A, B, C, D, and you've caught everyone who was going to do B, C, and D, but never quite got around to it. And it's an impossible conundrum. But we always have to have, and you know, think about the, you know, the vaccine, we, we ought to have in, in, in this sort of field a precautionary principle on, on human rights drafting and human rights legislation that we err on the side of caution where there is any doubt that there is going to be going to be a problem. If it's good enough for, for vaccines and medicine, it really ought to be good enough for people's human rights. I think the other problem that this, that this generates as well, and it cycles back round to press freedom, and that's the way that the press has successfully, over the years, uh, stigmatised and marginalised protesters uh, through a sort of clever form of othering that, you know, protesters are not like us, these are not civilized people. Uh, these are people on the fringes of society. Um, and you, know, you mentioned the suffragette movement, David. We see it there. The reporting of suffragettes, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, through to the present day. And um, what frustrates me is that there is a deep-rooted complacence within the British public that makes them rather blithe towards. Uh, their own government uh, and what then their own government's m- motives uh, in tackling this type of thing, and it sort of results from a sort of sense that well, this we live we live in in Britain, and the governments that the British have are, are always uh, good governments. They only ever fight for good, and if the government has taken the time to put this through Parliament, then there must be a good reason for that, and we should all sort of accede accede to it. Because you know, protesters—they're uh, not decent people like you and I. These are these are sort of people that that are just out to sort of cause trouble. We saw this with the reporting of Sarah Everard, the Sarah Everard vigils that occurred. I was actually surprised by a lot of the reporting, actually, because it was, it was fairly positive 
uh, in the way that it described the protesters. But then in relation to the police intervention, which was fairly heavy handed, uh, much of the right wing press reported that as uh, due to the presence of troublemakers, people that weren't there to, to hold a vigil that were only there to cause trouble. Whether that's right or not, we, we've no idea. But again, it plays to that that sort of trope, doesn't it? That, well, protesters, uh, these laws are necessary to tackle protesters who just want to cause trouble. I, I, I mean, I, I agree with you, Paul. And I, 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 mean, I hear your point, but I do wonder whether, A, the protests at the weekend in Clapham, but B, perhaps just the number of people, the range of backgrounds that have got involved in XR over the last couple of years, I think might mean that far more people are getting their hands involved in this sort of thing and perhaps witnessing uh, what sometimes happens to people on protests, which was probably unforeseen two, three, five, ten years ago. Now, whether we are, whether it's right that it takes that, that groups of people, um, historically always law-abiding sorts of people, to have, to have to be galvanised into action about the problem because they've witnessed it firsthand. I think it becomes a very interesting question because it starts to smack very slightly of nimbyism. You know, it's protest policing is always okay against other people. Oh, it has actually happened to me or, or my friend Mary. I ought now to be cross about it. But I think we can disregard that and at least be thankful that more people are getting involved in these sorts of things and more people are getting... Uh, Upset at some of the ways that other protesters are being, you know, being handled and and mishandled. I think that was quite interesting over the weekend, and I think operated to turn a sort of a swathe of people who wouldn't otherwise have been bothered is the wrong word, but who for whom it, they would have been who would have been uh, neutral on the matter into people that have that have seen friends of theirs um, have something happen to some friends of theirs and and and, and not like it. And I think that was a sort of a, a time, you know, almost the timing of that couldn't have been worse for a government trying to get a bill through Parliament that restricts people's right to protest in the way that it has the potential to do so. I think it's interesting how it will plan out. I mean, I, again, I don't know, the, the, the government has today announced that it's not going to send it straight to committee and have a pause on the legislation. So it was due to go straight into committee, but I don't think it's now going to committee until at least Easter or afterwards. To give time to uh, you know, time to reflect upon it. Such has been the outcry, either from the the letters that the legal academics wrote the other day, or the general outcry at the way the police have behaved at Clapham at the weekend. There seems to be some sort of slightly different mood in the air at Westminster. Perhaps we'll see. I think the the Sarah Everard vigil brings up a nice point maybe to conclude this episode on and that's the protest in a time of covid and and the fact that the police were able to act so heavily handedly at the weekend because they had coronavirus restrictions as an aid almost to help them you know legitimize their actions and and i know that the human rights committee has just reached in fact i believe it's today the day that we've recorded this podcast yeah it is come out with a report um on the coronavirus restrictions and the lockdown restrictions and um and the effect that they have on on the right to protest and i wondered if yeah either anyone here wants to take a, a, a stance on that and maybe give some thoughts 
Well, I'm happy to, I mean, I'm quoted in the in the human rights report that came out today. My evidence was quoted and I, um, so I'm sort of, I agree with the conclusion. I haven't read the report, I skimmed it. But um, the, 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 the case that I put, and I think which is the case that effectively the police accepted in the judicial review on Friday, I mean, is that the coronavirus regulations do not outlaw protest. Um, the fact that there was once an exemption in the regulations and that got removed in the current iteration actually is a red herring. It takes us no further. They are secondary, you know, they're, they're secondary legislation. They will always be trumped by the primary legislation of the Human Rights Act. That's not to say, Colette, to take your point from the start, that it will always, you can always protest, but the balancing is written into it. It, it exists as a right and ought to have been taken account of by the police. I think for the Met to have persisted right up to the door of the court on the judicial review on the Friday afternoon in their claim that um, they couldn't allow it, I think is 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 just legally legally indefensible. I think there's a host of reasons. There's a reasonable excuse written into the regulations that must include your right to protest following the case of Dolan at Christmas. The Human Rights Act trumps it. And another point that I've made uh, repeatedly is I think the word gathering has to be interpreted to mean socially distanced people. And once you are socially distanced, you are not a gathering that's unlawful because the regulations are health protection oriented, not public order. Public order. So I think what faced the Met on Friday afternoon once they'd lost the case, and I think they failed to do this from what I can see, is that they should have... Um, trying to facilitate the protest. They have a public, a positive duty to facilitate it. They didn't. And as a result, it all went a bit wrong on the, the Saturday evening. I suspect the protest, well, there was a point where the protest on Saturday was unlawful in regulations terms, because from what I can see of the, the full video footage, um, they were very, very, after about half an hour or 40 minutes, the group, the people were very, very close together. I don't think there was then a sense in which they were socially distanced and things like that. But that still doesn't entitle the police to act. Convention case law on Article 11 is really, really clear. As long as you are peaceful, you have the right to protest. The fact that you are acting unlawfully, you know, as a matter of domestic law, here quite possibly breach of the COVID regulations, rendering you to have been in, to, rendering you to be unlawful still doesn't entitle the police to have carte blanche en masse to disrupt the protest. They still have to assess the proportionality, still have to assess that people have the right to protest, still have to try and make sure that they're facilitating that. And, and I think they, they singly failed to do so. I would not be surprised if there were another judicial review following the way the police policed it, seeking clarification on that. But yes, you're right, the, the JCHR on the day we're recording this, has has published a report very, very critical of the of both the police, as I understand it, and of the government's approach in, in framing the regs. Yeah. The tradition in this country of policing is that police officers are citizens in uniform. They are not a militarised or quasi-militarised enforcement branch of the state in the same way that they are in some jurisdictions. Um, their primary function is to, yes, to maintain order and to protect people within the bounds of the law, to protect people as they go about their lawful business, and that includes protesting. So David is absolutely right when he says that what the police ought to have done uh, at Clapham was to find a way 
to facilitate the protest as safely as possible. Um, and this is something that uh, the, the organizers of the vigil um, had endeavored to do, tried to engage with the police and were still trying to engage with the police right up until uh, the, the vigil commenced. Um, so I think there has to be you know, a, a pause here, and this is an opportunity for the police to take a look at their own conduct, to take a look at the tradition of policing in this country and ask themselves, are they living up to the tradition that they ought to be living up to in the best spirit of it? Um, this is, you know, there, there are countries in this world where the police are very much separate from the people that they are policing. Um, and, but, but in those countries, you see brutality. You see the police operating at a remove from the ordinary citizen. The tradition of policing in this country, uh, and I'm privileged to know a number of police officers, my friends in the police force, um, who, who would, I'm sure, agree with this. The tradition has always been of uh, police officers being citizens in uniform, being part of the society, uh, and they should be acting in furtherance of uh, potentially disruptive, maybe annoying, but lawful protest. I think there is a lovely place to finish. So I just want to thank David for joining us today. Thank you very much. I invite you. I've had a, had a, a splendid time, really good chat, discussion, airing of views about, about something that is you know really, really critically important. And I think if we take the eye, our eye off the ball before we know it, the, the moment has gone. So good to have been able to get some of this out in the open, I think. Thanks, David. And uh, as ever, please follow us on social media at Media Law Podcast, and we will be back with more newscasts again soon. Thank you very much. Bye.